All right. If you were with us last week, we began a um, series on the epistle of 1 Peter. Um, if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, because it really set the stage for uh, where we're going with this. Um, this evening, we will look here at the first two verses. We looked at verse 1 last week. Um, we're including verse 2 this week. And then uh, the coming weeks, we'll start to speed up. But this is uh, really important for us as we begin our study. So let's open our, our hearts and our minds to God's Word. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The Word of the Lord. Help us, O oh God, to see marvelous things from your book. Open our eyes to behold, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive your instruction, your conviction, your comfort, your grace, your love, wherever your people are this evening. I pray that you would meet them there. And if there are those who have joined us tonight who are not among your people, who would not call themselves followers of Jesus, I pray that um, these words would be something that they've never heard before, that they would um, penetrate and um, they, would, they would see in, in, in this message something utterly unique and life-giving. I pray uh, for myself, give me help, give me um, perseverance, give me humility, and give me boldness. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Okay, we introduced things last week uh, by considering that we are a church in exile. We are a people in exile. We talked about this becoming um, increasingly our reality in our culture. We talked about the growth of um, irreligious secularism. Our world's becoming more secularism, more secular. And then we, talk, we also talked about kind of the death of cultural Christianity. And this all led us to the idea of the need for us to reimagine our life in this world according to the paradigm of exile. And all of that is true. But another interesting uh, cultural development that is currently taking place along with the um, death of cultural Christianity and the rise of um, the nons, the non-religious, so to speak, right alongside that movement is this other interesting cultural movement that puzzles some people, but um, I think makes perfect sense. And it is the resurgence of what we at TCPC, well not at TCPC, what is called Reformed Theology, which is something we believe here at TCPC. Um, I'm not going to get into um, what all that means. It's going to be talked about a lot tonight. Um, 
this, this, this theology because it's in, it's in Peter's um, opening here. Um, I'm not going to get into exactly what, what, what that means when we talk about Reformed theology or election is the word that's used in our passage or um, the title is Calvinism and these things. Um, I, I'm not going to take the time this evening to explain the terms, so to speak. If, you, um, if you'd like to talk more about that and, and understand why it is we believe these things and whatever, uh, Marshall can get with you. And you can get with Marshall and he can explain to you all the mysteries of God's holy um, election and, and all these different things. Um, but this isn't really going to be an apologetic for it. I, I will say this. Um, and at our main campus, I do lecture series every May to kind of speak to these different um, topics. And one of the ones I did uh, two years ago was on uh, predestination, a predestination lecture series. Um, you can go listen to that um, if you're interested in, in why it is we believe this crazy doctrine um, and how could somebody in our day and age believe that. Um, you can go listen to that. I, I think you can just go onto the website, uh, tcpca.org, and search for it. It'll probably come up. I'll tell you what, I'll have... Um, I'll have uh, the, I'll have them post. You need to follow uh, TCPC Downtown on social media. I think there's a, yeah, right there on a page, on the first page there, connect with us. Um, you got the Twitter site, you've got on Facebook, we have a page, you got the um, Instagram account. So follow those and um, I'll have somebody post a link to that this week so you can be on the lookout for that. Um, but I'm not going to explain that. What you just need to know is that there's been a resurgence of this thought. Um, they, it's been labeled the Young, Restless, and Reformed Movement. Um, and, and really, it's captured this demographic, um, the college, post-college, young adult demographic um, has really fallen in love with these ancient historical Reformed beliefs. When Time Magazine released its list of the 10 ideas that are changing the world right now, in the 21st century, Calvinism was number five on that list, which is fascinating. The, the Time Magazine very astutely pointed out that um, the, this is their words, not mine, but the friendly fuzzy Jesus, is how they labeled it, the friendly fuzzy Jesus of the 80s and 90s is no more. And in its place is a recapturing of reformed theology that has long been forgotten. And, um, and yeah, so this, these two movements, um, the, the, the death of cultural Christianity and the rise of kind of the historic uh, ancient expressions of Christianity, um, they're both happening simultaneously. And I think there's a reason for that. Our context in particular, American Presbyterianism, is a demonstration of that. We are seeing the death of our um, historic mainline denomination, the Presbyterian USA Church. It is, it is very, very quickly declining. Um, and, and, um, but, but alongside that, we're seeing the flourishing and, and expansion of the Presbyterian PCA Church, which we're a member of. Um, and it, and it's, it puzzles some people because one denomination, uh, the Presbyterian USA Church, is following the progressive movements of our age, but it seems to be dying off. And ours is resisting that in many ways and holding fast to historical theology. And it seems to be flourishing. And many people are puzzled by that. And I think this crowd right here is a puzzling crowd to some people. Uh, because we recite ancient creeds and we preach sermons about um, these weighty doctrines that I'm going to do tonight. And I think people wonder why that is. But I'm going to say tonight that I don't think that's a coincidence. I think those two movements, the rise of secularism 
and the church in exile, along with the resurgence of Reformed thought, are not a coincidence. And here's why. As the gospel is attacked, as the church is increasingly exiled and alienated, it is our rich historical theology that we return to. It is the, the, the trite, uh, simple, um, shallow self-help theology, that all can exist very well when life is good. Um, but it proves woefully shallow in the face of world's hostility. Nothing could be more laughable or ironic than exiles reading your best life now. The irony of these books that fill the Christian life sections is that they're not going to be worth anything in a few decades. What Christians need is a deep, rich, biblical, theological framework to sustain us in the days that are coming. Now, that's not just my opinion. I'm, I'm saying all this because I'm taking it directly from Peter in our passage. Look at the last phrase of verse 2. By the way, um, it is very important. You know, we just got done. We've been in Mark for four years, and now we're, we're preaching an epistle. And you just need to know that those are preached differently. When you preach um, something like Mark, which is more of a narrative, it, it, it's, it can feel more thematic to the passages. When you preach an epistle, it gets more down into the details of the wording and why he put this word there and all this stuff. So it's going to be important for you as we go through it this year to have your Bibles in front of you or to have this in front of you. Um, this is, if you're a note-taker person, uh, the epistles are great note-taking uh, uh, books because we get down into the details. So have this in front of you as we go through it. But look there at that last phrase of, um, of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now that phrase was the customary greeting for early Christians. So an expected letter would open this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the exiles of the dispersion. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then the letter starts. So it, it, it was like there, hey Marshall, um, I hope this finds you well. And then you go into the letter. The may grace and peace be multiplied to you was their standard greeting. And so it usually went first. But in the most unusual, unusual move here, Peter decides to open his letter with one of the fullest expressions of God's election in the Bible. Before he gets to his customary, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, he offers this robust vision of Trinitarian election that we're going to look at tonight. That's very intentional. And it would have been very obvious to the original readers. Why? Why does he begin this way? Why does he want to start with the doctrine of election? Well, it's because this is what we need the most. And that is what I want us to dwell on this evening. What do exiles need? We need to understand, to comprehend, to internalize, and to apply the doctrine of God's election. Three brief observations from these verses. The significance of our election, the extent of our election, and the cost of our election. So, significance, extent, and cost. Significance, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 
Peter does something with the Greek here. The, the New Testament is written in Greek, so what we have are translations of, of, of Greek. Um, Peter does something with the Greek here that is deliberate and significant. Many translations miss it in their attempt to make it read more smoothly because it does kind of read awkwardly if you, if you keep the original translation. But, but the ESV, I think, rightly keeps the integrity of the Greek here. The word elect in verse 1 is, as we will see, connected to the according to in verse 2. So we are elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father and so forth. And because of that, some translators are tempted to put the word elect just before the according to. If you have an old NIV version, they have that. Um, the King James Version has that. King James Version reads like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout these different regions. And then he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it puts elect right before verse 2 there. And I understand the reasoning behind that translation decision because it ensures that the word elect is connected to verse 2, as it should be. But I think something very significant is lost in that translation. As I said last week, and as we will see throughout 1 Peter, the theme of 1 Peter is our exile. That will be central. And we talked about that last week. But exile is not Peter's first word to us in the letter. Before, and this is very intentional on his part, before he calls his readers exiles in verse 1, he calls them chosen. And that is so important. First and foremost, Peter wants to make sure that we view our status not fundamentally as rejected by the world, but as chosen by God. We may be rejects, but we are chosen rejects, as my sermon title says. And that is Peter's main strategy for surviving our exile, which I find so fascinating and I actually love as a lover of theology. Peter's comfort to exiles is not practical. It's doctrinal. Contrary to the spirit of our pragmatic age, Peter does not offer five steps to surviving exile. He offers a theology of sovereign election. And we should find that encouraging as a community that's trying to resist the pragmatic ways of the modern church and hold to the value of rich historic theology. We, we should find that encouraging, but it's also a challenging, a challenge to a community like ours. Because Peter does not speak of election as an idea to be studied and debated, but instead he sees it as practical, life-transforming, life-sustaining truth. In other words, what we need to see as a community, as a church that believes in this theology, the challenge for us who affirm the doctrine of election is begin to view it not as something to cognitively assent to, but as something to cling to with our whole life. Peter does not approach the doctrine of sovereign election as a fun intellectual exercise to discuss over coffee. He views it as the rock upon which exiles are going to stand. And it is indeed. What will sustain you when this world hates you? The sovereign decree that God loves you. What will sustain you when you lose possessions and reputation and relationships or perhaps even your freedom? What's going to sustain you when you lose so much in this world? The sovereign decree that you cannot lose God. What will sustain you when you 
falter and you stray when you are tempted by the world of our exile. Not just when you're tempted by the ways of this world, but when we join with the ways of the world, when we fall, when we, when we struggle, when we, our life is hypocritical, when we choose to sin rather than choose to honor our God. What will sustain us when we fail Him? The sovereign decree that your God cannot fail you. He has chosen you, and indeed He cannot go back on His choice. So what's going to happen, what should happen, is that the realities of exile will force our Reformed theology out of the lecture series and into real-life anxieties. Out of podcasts and into the real world of exile. And that is why Peter calls us elect before he calls us exiles. Because he believes that our election is what will sustain us. And it's not even enough just to call us elect. He doesn't just, in a, in a, in a, in a smooth wording, insert that one little word elect before he calls us exiles. Um, that's not enough for him. He wants the exiles to know the fullness of their election. So even before he gets to his customary greeting, he, he shows us the, the full extent of our election. One verse that might be the richest description of our election. Let's look at that next, the extent of our election. Perhaps you notice there in verse 2, the Trinitarian emphasis. Peter views election as a triune conspiracy of the Godhead. All persons of the Trinity working together with one goal in mind, you. The, the, that, that Father, Son, Spirit are together, together in their counsel saying, we, I must have you. Conspiring together for you. We need to look at it. It says, elect First, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Christians who resist the idea of God's election try to interpret foreknowledge in the sense that God foreknew the choice of His people. Um, that in His omniscience, in knowing everything, God is able to know who will choose Him, and based upon that knowledge, God elects, God chooses us. And in this way, we, we, what happens is that we solve the supposed dilemma by making it all about our choice rather than God's choice. The problem with that interpretation is that the word never carries that meaning. Biblically speaking, knowledge is far more than cognitive insight. That's a very Western Enlightenment view of knowledge, that it's just an idea. Knowledge is far more than cognitive insight. It is a deep and intimate experience. So foreknowledge means that God deeply and intimately knows us even before we come into being. My wife is due here in a few weeks, but we already know our son. He doesn't have a clue who we are. He doesn't have the capacity to know who we are, but we know him. We love Him. We think of Him. We pray for Him. And we can't wait for Him to know us. That is what the Bible means by God's foreknowledge. When you turn the Father's foreknowledge into His ability to foresee a choice that you're going to make, it destroys the promise and comfort of God's foreknowledge. Let the mystery of our election, and it is mysterious, 
But let the mystery of our election stand so that the promise may stand. And it's this, long before your days of exile, long before these difficult, painful circumstances, long before you were even conceived, long even before the foundations of the world, you were on the heart of the Father. Your name echoed within the council of the Trinity in eternity past. He knew your name. He knew your story. He knew you. And before you even came into being, He had already decided you belong to Him. And nothing's going to change that. And in this way, the foreknowledge of our Heavenly Father combats the anxieties of our earthly exile. We may be rejected by the world. We are known, dare I say, foreknown of my Heavenly Father. Our election is not just rooted in past foreknowledge of the Father, though. It is presently at work in us. Continue on. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Another big churchy word there, sanctification. We typically think of sanctification as a process of change in our life, and that's certainly true. But the sanctification of the Spirit, um, the root meaning of that word carries with it the idea of being set apart. And that's what Peter is emphasizing here. What he's saying here is that election means that in eternity past, the Father set us apart with His foreknowledge, and that gives way to present a present setting apart of the Spirit. The Spirit is alive and active in us, with us, sanctifying us. And again, this is meant to bring comfort to exiles. And it does, when, think, when thought of properly. When bad things are happening to us, we hold fast to the truth that a better thing is happening within us. In fact, the Spirit's sanctification is so powerful that He uses the bad things in our lives to produce good things within our lives. My exile is a tool in the hand of the Spirit producing my sanctification. And what is He after? Or to put it another way, what is the result of the Father's foreknowledge and the Spirit's sanctification? Well, it all gives way to the ultimate goal of our election, obedience to Jesus. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for or unto obedience to Jesus Christ. This is where God's election is made manifest. The knowledge of the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit can feel very um, abstract, like ethereal ideas. But they always produce something very concrete and external and visible, and it is obedience to Jesus. A major theme of 1 Peter is that exiles live in this world as a different people. And the difference is found in the fact that we are a people who obey Jesus. We are a peculiar community who, that does not join the tide of obedience to idols and the ways of this world, but instead we obey Jesus and the ways of His kingdom. And it makes us strangers and it makes us weird and it gets people hating us, but we obey Jesus. And Peter is saying that this obedience is the ultimate manifestation of our election. Now remember, Peter's not teaching a lecture series here. He is comforting exiles with the news of their election. And that's why I found this part of verse 2 a bit odd as I studied the text. How would, 
you would expect him, if he's trying to comfort us, you would expect him to say something like this. According to the foreknowledge of the Father, in the sanctification spirit, unto perhaps the salvation of Jesus, the, 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 um, the reward, our inheritance. In other words, if Peter's trying to comfort us in our exile, shouldn't he hold out for us the reward of our election? Namely, our salvation and eternal glory? Well, he'll do that in chapter 1, but here he highlights obedience as the fruit of election. How is, I struggled with this this week, how is the promise of obedience to Jesus supposed to comfort me in my exile? And the answer is, it won't be a comfort if you're not a follower of Jesus. But if you belong to Jesus, if the Spirit is at work in your heart sanctifying you, then here's what I know of you. Deep down, your greatest desire is to obey Jesus. I know it's duplicitous. It is in my life too. I know my life often doesn't look like that. I know I struggle. But yes, deep down, what do we want more than anything? It is the desire to obey Jesus. So this is a strange promise that will only make sense to followers of Jesus because you will only find this verse comforting if obeying Jesus is more important to you than your comfort. God's election does not promise you anything in this life except that He is making you more like Jesus. If what you want in this life is prosperity or popularity or power or whatever else from this world, then I have bad news for you. Exile is going to cost you what you want. But if, you, if what you want is obedience to Jesus, then good news, exile cannot touch what you want. In fact, exile will be used to give you what you want. So to find this comforting... <laughs> <laughs> to find the promise that we get to obey Jesus. To find that comforting, obedience to Jesus has to be more important to you than your comfort. The foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. There's one last phrase there that Peter wants to say before he officially begins his letter with uh, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. One last thing about election that is so important. And it's the cost of our election. That last phrase seems a bit out of place. It feels like it should be foreknowledge of the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience to Jesus Christ. Now let's get to the letter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. But he adds that strange wording. And for sprinkling with blood. <laughs> for sprinkling with His blood. You were chosen to obey Jesus and to be sprinkled with His blood. That may sound like strange language to us, but the original readers would know exactly what Peter's talking about here. His words are an explicit echo of Exodus 24. The story is, is that when Moses received the law of God, he immediately slaughtered a bull, and he put the blood in a bowl, and then he gathers Israel, the elect, the chosen nation of God, and this is what we read in Exodus 24, 7. This is the first time that they've, they've heard the word, the, the law of God. It says, He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, 
All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Next verse. And Moses took blood and threw it on the people. I love that. The people, we will be obedient. And then Moses sprinkles them with blood saying, in effect, you're going to need this. Your pledge to obey is going to need God's atonement. And now Peter is saying, you are chosen to obey Jesus and you're going to need the blood of Jesus. And Peter is reminding us that that blood has been shed. The one that we are chosen to obey is also the one who has atoned for our disobedience. The blood has been shed, the full and final blood, unlike the blood of bulls of goats and lambs and bulls, which can never atone for sin. And so the Old Testament is just this bloody, perpetual slaughter. But then the once and for all sacrifice sheds his blood and it is finished. And Peter is reminding us that we were chosen for that blood. Which means this, our election bears a cost, but it's not a cost to the chosen ones. It is a cost to the one who has chosen. The election of God's people sealed the rejection of God's Son. But here's what you need to know. God counted the cost of His choice. God counted the cost of his election and it was worth it to him. You were worth it to him. Is he worth it to you? Is he worth your exile? For him to choose you came with an ultimate cost. For you to choose Jesus will come with exile. Is it worth it? Or to put it another way, are you glad that he chose you? You thankful for that choice? It means exile. It means suffering. It means pain. It means hardship. You glad he chose you? Or if you are not a follower of Jesus, do you want him to choose you? That's an odd question. And that's what everybody always goes to immediately with this doctrine. Well, if he chooses, what does it matter? Da, 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 da. No, it's not how you think about it. You want him to choose you? Do you want to know how we will know, how you can know whether you are the chosen of God if you choose him? Because if you do, from eternity past, he knew you. He wanted you. He ordained that choice. So do you want him to choose you? I would say count the cost before you say yes to that. Because it's going to come with exile. But to those who wrestle with, um, are, we, um, are we glad that he chose us? To us who wrestle with, do I want him to choose us, choose me? Though it means exile, though it means suffering and hardship, though it comes at a cost, we have to wrestle with, are we still glad that he chose us? Peter opens his letter by calling us elect exiles. I call it chosen rejects. Is the former worth the latter? 
Is God's welcome worth the world's rejection? Is God's love worth the world's enmity? Is God's delight in you worth the world's mocking you? Is our election worth our exile? I think we know to say yes, and I think we struggle to say yes. I think in our weakest moments, we're not sure. And our lives, we're ashamed to admit, at times bear the evidence of these doubts. Well, in the next 10 verses, Peter has something for your heart. In some of the most beautiful and breathtaking promises of Scripture, in all of Scripture, he's going to show us why God's election is infinitely worse, is infinitely worth, as a poor church has slipped there, infinitely worth the cost of this world's rejection. But today, only this. He opens the letter with the steadfast fast news to those struggling with their exile. You are worth it to God. His choice of you came with an ultimate cost. Yes, your choice of Him will cost you. His choice of you came with an ultimate cost. But the doctrine of sovereign election assures us that He has absolute zero regrets in making that choice. Let me thank Him. Lord, thank You for Your electing love. Thank You that before eternity passed, you knew us. Thank you that you, Spirit, are with us now, sanctifying us. Thank you for the promise of obedience to Jesus, which is our heart's greatest desire. And thank you for the shedding of blood, the sprinkling of blood. We thank you that when you chose us, it sealed the destiny of your Son, and yet you chose us. Jesus, thank you, thank you for your faithfulness, even unto death as we now feast on your sacrifice, the cost of our election, I pray you would be precious to us and that we would all leave here saying it's worth it. We are thankful that you chose us, even with all of the hardships and the complications and the difficulties, even with our exilic status, we say thank you that you have chosen us. In your name we pray. Amen.